Section 22 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5, The Religious Conflict Merged in the Great War, Part 4. Like Henry III of France, Matthias at this time, in 1617, stood helpless against the association of the two confessions in the empire, and utterly impotent, against the forces which they, though inadequately, represented. The collision between these two forces, though postponed by policy, by half-heartedness and by apprehensions which the event justified a hundredfold, was no longer to be avoided. And such, notwithstanding many failures and reverses, had been the persistent and indefatigable activity of the counter-reformation movement, such too had been the caprices of fortune, which had substituted James I for Henry IV, and was about to substitute Ferdinand II for Matthias, that the case of the reaction was now anything but hopeless. France and Spain were at peace with one another, and the religious policy of France was rapidly assimilating itself to that traditional to the House of Habsburg. Indeed, the decree which in 1617 ordered the restoration of the church estates in Béarn was an anticipation in small of the Edict of Restitution. Again, the spiritual head of the Catholic world, Paul V, in his later years, anxiously strove to avert anything that might impair its unity, through which in the earlier years of his reign his arrogance had threatened to make a breach. Moreover, Philip III of Spain had been by his minister Lerma brought to perceive that the day had passed for aiming at a hegemony over Western and Central Europe, although king and people still believed in the mission of Spain as the foremost of the Catholic powers. At home the Inquisition maintained its authority, and asserted it by such acts as the expulsion of the Moors from Spain in 1609, and at no time has the influence of the Church over the minds of men been more visibly omnipotent in Spain than in the early half of the 17th century, the period of the Comedias de Santos and Autosacramentales of Lope, Calderon, and their contemporaries. Abroad, the Spanish government had for some time carried on a propaganda alternating between conversion and corruption, directed to the courts rather than to the peoples, which was no altogether ineffective preparation for the resumption of more direct efforts for the aggrandizement of the power of Spain and Rome. Among the German Habsburgs, the miserable Bruderzwist was at an end, and the day was soon at hand when they would acknowledge as their head the most unflinchingly orthodox of their number, Ferdinand II, intimately allied by marriage and in religious policy with Maximilian of Bavaria, the head of the Catholic League, and the chief potentate of the German Southwest. Even in the North and East there was some reason for hopefulness. The Orthodox Sigismund of Poland had never abandoned his claims to the Swedish throne and was about to make war on its Protestant occupant, Gustavus Adolphus. In Denmark, the signs of a Catholic reaction were still few and scant, but the Danish princess Anne, who shared the English and Scottish thrones, and whose sister Hedvig was about this time suggested as a consort for Ferdinand of Styria, 
had become a secret convert to Rome. Nor was the day distant when further efforts would be made toward the recovery of England for Rome, less direct but hardly less alarming to Protestant popular sentiment than those devised by Philip II. In the meantime, the influence of Spain had never been more in the ascendant with the English court and government than now. The Spanish marriage negotiations were uppermost in the mind of James I, and in 1618 he sacrificed Raleigh to the demands of Gondomar. The Protestants, on the other hand, entered into the struggle disunited, and for the most part dispirited. They were without a leader except the youthful elector palatine Frederick V. France seemed lost as an ally, and England hopeless. Never had the religious controversies between the several Protestant parties and sects been more bitter. The Synod of Dort met in the very year in which the Great War broke out, 1618. Never had the labor expended, especially among the Calvinists, upon the compilation of vast and provocative bodies of theological doctrine been more intense. In some quarters the democratic tendencies of advanced Protestantism were alarming conservative sympathies. Elsewhere its increasing narrowness was estranging cultivated minds. No attempt can be made here to narrate the course of the struggle, which opened thus far from unfavorably for the cause of the Catholic reaction. There were stages in the progress of the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, when that movement seemed on the eve of more notable advances than any which had been recorded in the course of this sketch. The one enduring gain of the Counter-Reformation was the recovery by Rome of Bohemia, where she had lost her supremacy for the better part of two centuries. This gain would have undoubtedly been far more extensive had it not been for the sagacious vigilance and untiring energy of the Prince of Transylvania, Betlen Gabor, 1613-29. In his endeavors to hold the balance between that house and the Turk, he naturally availed himself of the Protestant feeling in Hungary and in the hereditary dominions of the House of Austria. His own temperament inclined toward tolerance rather than confessional enthusiasm. Protestantism contrived to maintain itself in Hungary throughout the reign of Ferdinand II, 1619-37, and after the pressure of his and his adviser, Cardinal Pasmani's Catholic zeal had been removed, George Rakosi's insurrection led to a fairly satisfactory settlement of the Protestant grievances and demands, 1645-46. The history of the Counter-Reformation and that of movements analogous to it hardly contain a second passage resembling the record of the restoration of Catholicism in Bohemia. After the so-called Bohemian War had come to an end with the Battle of the White Hill at Prague, November 8, 1620, and the flight of Frederick, Bohemia lay at Ferdinand's mercy, and by the spring of 1621 his authority was restored throughout his dominions. With his measures of political punishment and retaliation in Bohemia, Silesia, and Moravia, and in Upper Austria, we cannot here concern ourselves. The religious reaction began at Prague so soon as King Frederick and his caravan had turned their backs on the city gates. It continued to rise even after, February 1622, 
a general pardon had been issued. It was still in progress when, after the first great victory of Gustavus Adolphus, the elector John George invaded Bohemia as the ally of the Swedish deliverer in 1631, and its operations were by no means at an end with the Peace of Westphalia, 1651 was a notable year of emigrations. The general direction of the proceedings was entrusted to the governor of Bohemia, Prince Charles of Liechtenstein, and to the Archbishop of Prague, Ernest von Harasch, while under them the chief management fell to Count Paul Michna, a pupil of the Jesuits, who had formerly, as Secretary of the Kingdom, countersigned the Letter of Majesty. Their joint action was characterized by that species of deliberation which is best calculated to ensure completeness. On the closing, destruction, or reconstruction of Protestant churches following the expulsion, in succession, of the clergy of the Bohemian Brethren, of the Calvinists, of the Bohemian Ultraquist, and finally of the German Lutherans. Commissaries at times with troops of dragoons at their back effected this with often brutal rigor. By Ferdinand's wish, they were, when possible, accompanied by Jesuits, so that no opportunity might be lost of converting the inhabitants. Jesuits and Dominicans took the places of the expelled ministers. In Prague, Olmutz and Breslau and another towns of Bohemia and the dependent provinces, the Jesuits assumed a complete command of higher and secondary education. But in the villages, ignorant Polish monks had often to be put in the vacant incumbencies, or there was for a time a complete solitudo clericorum. As a matter of course, a raid was made on all heretical books, especially on German and Bohemian Bibles, indeed to make sure upon all Bohemian books whatever. Within about fifteen years Catholic uniformity was re-established in Bohemia, but the forced emigrations of recusants, which had begun in 1622, continued after the victory had been outwardly consummated. In 1627 a royal patent of reformation offered to the Protestant nobility the choice between conversion and banishment, and the majority preferred the latter alternative. A vast transfer of estates followed. Nor was it only among the nobles and in the towns that a steadfast spirit was displayed, as is shown by some noteworthy peasants' revolts. Though it should be remembered to the honor of Ferdinand II that he explicitly desired the restoration of religious unity to be unstained by bloodshed, Yet the thoroughness of the Bohemian counter-reformation remains without a parallel, for it involved a denationalization of the government and official administration, of the educational system, and to some extent of the very literature and language of the land. In the dependent counties Moravia and Silesia, similar measures had similar results. In Upper Austria, the counter-reformation began with an expulsion en masse of Anabaptists. After the Protestant invasion and peasants' rebellions which ensued, the work thus began was accomplished, as was believed, to the extent of the complete extinction of Protestantism, 1628. In Lower Austria, the procedure was much the same, though to the nobility more consideration was here shown, and the propaganda had to content itself with a more gradual advance. 
When in 1623 the Palatine electorate, forfeited by the unfortunate Frederick V, was formally bestowed upon Maximilian of Bavaria, the prospect opened of yet another German land being brought back to the fold by a similar series of operations. At the close of the first period of the Thirty Years' War, about 1624, the progress of the Catholic reaction seemed assured if the emperor maintained his ascendancy in Germany, which he had established with the aid of Spain in the League, and secondly, if the good understanding between Spain and France endured. The accession to the papacy early in the course of the Great War of Gregory XV, 1621-23, had contributed to strengthen the cause of Rome. Though an old and broken man, who left the entire management of his affairs to Cardinal Lodovisio and his other nipoti, he pursued a rigidly orthodox policy and exhibited a devotion to Spain unknown at the Vatican since the days of Clement VIII. Gregory the Fifteenth was succeeded by Urban the Eighth, sixteen twenty three to forty four. So far as the advancement of his family, the Barbarini was concerned, the new pope followed in the footsteps of his predecessor, but his policy was peculiar to himself. True, Urban was in principle as consistent an adversary of Protestantism and as alive to the importance of Catholic effort as were any of the popes of the Counter-Reformation. If Gregory XV had canonized Ignatius Loyola, he canonized Francis Borgia. In 1627, at the very time of the triumph of the emperor, he renewed the bull in Cena Domini, and he symbolized its claims by a monument in St. Peter's to the Countess Matilda. But he hereby likewise expressed his defiance of the imperial authority, and emphasized his determination to treat the great war not as a religious conflict, but as turning on the political relations between the powers. He accordingly viewed with undisguised displeasure the overwhelming coalition of Spain and Austria, encouraged the efforts of France to recover her influence in Italy, and at least did nothing to hinder the victorious progress of Gustavus Adolphus and of the Protestant cause. During the earlier years, however, of Urban VIII's papacy, the advance of the Catholic reaction knew no break, and the results of the so-called Danish War, 1625-29, to were such as to suggest an attempt to undo on a large scale the compromise of the religious peace of Augsburg. Christian IV of Denmark had been unwillingly left in the lurch, both by Charles I of England and by Richelieu. The relations between King Charles and his Parliament made it impossible for him to transmit more than a fraction of the promised subsidies. As for Richelieu, who since 1624 stood at the head of affairs in France, though the French government had taken serious note of the great increase of power which had accrued to the House of Habsburg from the results of the Bohemian and Palatinate Wars, he was first hampered by the aggressive movements of the Huguenots, and then derided for having offered them a conciliatory settlement, 1625. Thus he had to allow the Danish war to take its course, and even to compromise the Valtellina question, in which his coup de main had intervened, by the Peace of Monson, March 1626. 
France seemed less likely than ever to oppose the cause of Habsburg and Rome when the great plot was formed against Richelieu, 1625-26, and when the war against the Huguenots, in which Buckingham's ambition had led to the feudal intervention of England, ended with the fall of Rochelle, 1627-28. For the moment, it might even seem as if a complete Catholic restoration were possible in France. But Richelieu, whose hand grew firmer and firmer on the helm, was far removed from any such intention. He granted moderate terms to the Huguenots in the Edict of Nîmes, 1629, and made peace with England in 1630. His desire was to resume the contest with Spain, and for this the question of the Mantuan succession soon furnished him with the desired opportunity. End of section 22